Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. This weekend, I wanted to drop a bonus episode for y'all. Last week, I spoke to Monica Samuels of Vine Connections about importing sake and the trends we're seeing on a national and regional level. But to better appreciate that conversation, I wanted to do an episode on the basics of sake production. That's why I spoke to Matt Taylor. Matt leads sake education at Uchi, one of Houston's best Japanese restaurants. I gave Matt the impossible task of explaining sake production for our podcast listeners in under an hour, and he did so without dumbing it down at all. So let's jump into Sake 101 with Matt. All right, Matt, you are the beverage trainer for the Houston location of Uchi. For people listening that aren't familiar, how would you describe the restaurant? Um, Uchi is a Japanese-inspired restaurant. It's it's uh it's 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 half the menu is sushi and half the menu is other plates that are inspired by Japanese cuisine. But I think that what makes um Uchi what it is is the culture that it has, which is this concept of everyone kind of being uh, at home, which is what Uchi means. And I think that's what really reaches out. And then the great thing, it's a great company to work for because they have a very um, high regard for education and kind of not only educating their staff, but educating their staff to educate the guest. And I think that's uh, what I respect most about Uchi. Yeah, and it it makes it uh, really nice for someone like me who's constantly craving uh, knowledge and just addicted to learning things, essentially. Before you were slinging Otoro and Sake, where were you working? Uh, before, before I worked at Uchi, I actually worked at uh, Chewy's. Chewy's. Oh, man. Guacamole and fajitas. Some OG Tex-Mex. That's so rad. I mean, it's pretty standard. I mean, it was solidly standard Tex-Mex. There's some some great uh, things on the menu there. I haven't actually eaten there in like three years, which is unfortunate because I need to go back and get some of my... What was your go-to dish? You know, I was the expo there for two years. So whenever I would work, I would basically... I, you know, the guys, uh, all the, the cooks at the end of the night would just make me something. But they usually knew that I wanted a changa. Um and you know like a fried burrito i would always ask them to stuff it with uh the kids chicken strips so they would fry the kids chicken strips and then stuff it inside of the burrito and then also put mac and cheese in there which was also off the kids menu and then put a bunch of roasted red peppers and serranos and mushrooms and then they would deep fry that thing and then i would smother it in spicy queso and two fried eggs that sounds sick yeah, it was it was definitely like yeah, a fatty meal. Swagged out chonga custom. But sounds pretty healthy. Yeah, very it was very, very healthy. After you see like a million Mexican food plates go out and you're plating all of them up, you know, at the end of the day you're like, I just want something to destroy me. <laughs> and that was what I would choose. <laughs> yeah, just get that chonga. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool though. Like to me, that's so cool that you move from this big Tex-Mex chain like Chewy's to a restaurant like Uchi. Because I got to imagine that in terms of service and like exhibition of flavors, they're worlds apart from one another. I mean, at Chewy's, you've got these big bombastic flavors and Uchi is all about like delicate but laser-like precision. I mean, the two restaurants seem very different, but do you see a unifying factor there? There is a unifying factor and the unifying factor is the... Uh... I guess the 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 heightened sense of service like and with Uchi it's like heightened in the sense where the staff is elevated and the food is elevated where at Chewy's it was like hustling like it's a very hustle mentality sharking like stealing other people's tables is very um uh you know it's condoned and encouraged if you show up late for your shift someone can take your section from you um and i think that's what satisfied me about it in the beginning when i first started uh i started working there when i was uh getting my uh degree at uh, u of h and i just after i got my degree i kind of stuck with it for a little bit because it was it was just satisfying this part of me that just wanted to win you know like or just wreck shop and hustle and bustle like when you're when you're an expo at a restaurant where they're having 1200 plates come out an hour, you know, like that's, that's, it's, it's very challenging. And I could not believe it. Like, you know, it's like show up to work every day. Just my hands would just burn, you know, from grab. Cause like, you know, you don't have time to like grab 
you know, a towel or whatever to plate something up, you see the ticket, you plate it up and you go, you got to get that food out because there's, there's like 15 cooks behind that thing and they're just shoving plates in there and you just got to go. And of course, everyone's customizing everything. It's a, yeah. And it's, it's crazy how, when you first learn that system that you would think like, this is way intense and too much to just, but then once you get it down, it's, it was, it was very much like a composition, I suppose. And that's where it translates over to Uchi for me, because when at Uchi, it's the exact same thing, except for it's mental. It's not, um, it's not like seeing and reacting. It's more that these people give you, they, they either give give you an order. And on average, people are ordering like eight to 12 things. And they're, and you're supposed to be coursing them out one or two things at a time. Um, and then, or they're letting you pick and you have to, you know, figure out things to do all that. And so when you've got, you know, four tables or, uh, are doing all that at the same time and you're trying to make sure that everything flows smoothly and get their drinks, you know, and whatever, there's, there's a lot of, uh, of thought that goes behind it. It's very, uh, orchestrated at times. Uh, all right. Well, there you go. Um, so we're here to kind of hash out sake for people that maybe need a little bit of a primer on understanding how it's made and why it tastes the way that it does. Well, if we're going to talk about sake, the place to begin is probably with rice. Um, and it's a specific type of grain, right? It's a sake rice that you use to make it. Uh, yeah, typically uh, sake is made with sake rice or sake mai, as they would say in Japan. It's a short grain rice. It is a japonica um strand of, of, of rice. There's about a hundred, I think closer to like 120 now, um, strains of very specific sake rice. But what makes it so special from other short grain rice, and it's sake rice has a lot of starches, not a lot of protein, uh, because the protein tends to develop kind of musty flavors in the sake. Um, and so more sugary rice in general. And you also kind of want it to have the rice collect more towards the center which is kind of how a lot of loosely how a lot of sake rices are rated by how how little protein they have um and how much their how much their their starches are concentrated in the center because when the starches are concentrated in the center it makes it easier to get rid of all of the dirty outside part of the rice and have um still a lot of stuff to ferment left over so we're talking about concentration in the core of the rice grain, right? Yeah, they call it the shinpaku or the white heart of the uh, of the rice. Because if you actually look at a sake rice sample, usually you can uh, see in most of the grains a much more dense white part than the kind of cuticle uh, around the, the rice, which is a little clearer. Okay, so beyond the physiology of the rice grain like the yields for sake rice are significantly lower than yields for normal rice. I mean, that's a huge part of why sake rice is so expensive, right? Right. So not only is it, uh, is it more of an expensive um, agricultural product, but then after it gets, after the government grades it and gives it back to the brewers, um, they, they, they then have to take it and get rid of, you know, a large portion of the rice. Uh, especially if they're trying to make uh, premium sake or tokute meishoshu, which is the Japanese word for premium sake, basically. Um, but so there's there's two types of sake, and one of them is like, well, there's a bunch of different types of sake, but there's two classifications of sake when it comes to the the tax office in Japan. And one of them is that it's normal table sake. And one of them is that it's premium sake. And in order to be premium sake, there has to be uh, a specific amount of milling that happens to the outside of the rice um, to get more of those concentrated starchy centers. Whereas normal sake table sake doesn't have to have that happen. Okay, so this milling that you're talking about is like one of the huge differentiating parts of sake, right? Um, and it's a pretty involved process, right? I mean, you're whittling down the exterior of each of those individual grains to get to that shimpaku, that, uh, starch rich core that you were talking about. Right. Yeah. So the, 
a lot of people don't know that, you know, when you get just starches and just pure starches by themselves, they tend to have a lot of um, esters similar to different, uh, many other different like veg, you know, veg, vegetables and fruits. So you get all these different aromas and, and stuff from them. And the thing is that they're, they're very light and they're very subtle. So if you don't get rid of the outside part, which is usually containing more proteins and fats, which have much stronger flavors, then you're going to miss out on some of the subtler flavors underneath. So since all of the starches are concentrated in the center, the goal is to get rid of, you know, a good amount of the fats and the proteins on the outside so that can shine through. Okay, but how do they actually whittle the rice down? How do they actually go through that milling process? All rice in the olden days was milled by hand. So to get to that starchy center, what they did is they had a bunch of sweaty Japanese men in loincloths hanging out together and were literally taking their hands and kind of like a, a rough fabric, if you will, and just rubbing these rice strains all over this rough fabric. And what that's doing is just nicking off a little bit of the outside uh, at a time. There are still breweries that do it this way, Tadori Gawa. Um, is one of them that's uh, widely available. They still do a lot of their sake by hand. Um, yeah, but these days, most places use um, what's referred to as a hopper. And uh, essentially, the rice goes up and it goes into this cylindrical-like thing. And if you've ever had a burr grinder or uh, you know seen one of those, it basically is like that on the inside, just a little spinning disc almost. And the rice comes down and it nicks a little piece off and then it falls through. And then usually air or a conveyor belt takes it back up to the top and does it over and over and over again. And then as you continue down that road, because the rice, it's not been cooked yet. And uh, anyone who's made rice incorrectly can attest to the fact that rice will crack if it is not heated correctly uh, or is, you know, go, undergo some type of stress that you don't want it to. So as you continue to get to mill more and more away, you have to uh, cool it down more, make sure that the humidity is correct more, and you have to uh, slow everything down so the rice doesn't crack. So not only are you getting rid of you know, a lot of your product just to make a product, but you're also spending a ton of money on, uh, and, and labor and time on getting these things to, uh, to even to that point. So that's why usually sake is with, um, more, more, uh, rice milled away tend to be more expensive, not because they're better, but because they're literally just much more expensive to make. Yeah, I don't know. It's really funny that you say that because I feel as though a lot of sake professionals will be the first to say that an increase in price doesn't necessarily correspond to an increase in quality. Right. Um, just that in, there is an increase in time spent making that product. Um, and that just because something is more time consuming does not necessarily mean it is objectively better. That flavor is far more subjective. Right. I, I like to equate it to people to like bourbon, uh, sorry, bourbon, uh, bourbon barrel aged beers because it is a style of beer and it does typically cost more to make and is there's a lot that, you know, goes into it. They usually can't make a lot of it. There's there's a whole bunch of things that go into it that make it more expensive than a regular lager, say. Uh, and so the, the, the idea of the, the sake milling is, is a similar thing, right? It's, it's more expensive to make this style, but it's just that style. A lot of people don't like bourbon barrel aged beers. Um, and, but that doesn't mean that they don't like other kinds of beers. And it definitely doesn't mean that bourbon barrel aged beers are better. I feel like that comparison, I've never heard that one before, but I feel like that describes it perfectly. It's, uh, it's, it's difficult because I feel like one of the biggest, struggles for me with uh guests and sake is you know the people who get a, a hold of a little bit of knowledge of sake or have some other people kind of like upsell them on sake and so they think that that is you know what's best because in our western world we tend to associate price with quality where in the japanese world the eastern world they associate price with the margin that they're working with so 
Um, there are some breweries that have emerged that are very specific breweries that make only these really kind of more expensive styles. But for the most part, most breweries make all styles and they're, they're not charging, uh, a bunch more for their really, you know, uh, highly milled stuff. They're just charging the same margin as everything else that they make. It just happens to be more expensive because it just costs them more to make. Okay. So we've talked about the harvesting of the rice we talked about the polishing of the rice and we talked about how milling the rice grains down from like getting rid of those lipids and proteins on the exterior of each rice grain and getting down to that starch rich shimpaku is really really important for certain styles of sake but the next major thing to happen is koji right and koji is this really fascinating fungus that's used to turn the starch-rich core into sugar that can be fermented. Um, And koji is like a uniquely Japanese thing, right? I mean, at least in terms of brewing procedures, it's pretty special there. Uh, Is there an English name for it? Um, I don't think that there is an English name. There's a Latin name, which is Aspergillus orzi. Um, And so that's the, the... it's a, a strain of aspergillus that specifically um, likes to attack uh, rice, uh, which I think is what orzai means. Um, but it's it's made it's it's the same uh, mold that's used to make uh, soy sauce. It's the same mold that's used to make miso. It's um, used in many different ferment or uh, distilled beverages like sochu and aomori and baiju right these all have this in common this this koji um and there's a bunch of different strains but, of, of it okay but uh is koji indigenous to asia are there examples of like this mold propagating in western european brewing um well i mean one of the most interesting things about what I've learned about wine and the the winemaking process is that aspergillus is seen as an enemy. Um, and it's been, there's been aspergillus taint in wine for hundreds of years. So it would, it would suggest that Koji has been around for a very uh, long time and prominent throughout the world. I, I think that Japan is the first um, power to really, uh, isolate koji and really say like this is you know what it does and all that but yes it's been very it was very popular in china sake itself technically comes from from china uh it was kind of perfected by the japanese but it got its start there um you know baiju and sochu you know all these things are using uh koji but there was not a lot of western use of mold to ferment um so the the cultural practice wasn't really seen before, but I imagine that as, as a mold, it's probably everywhere, but they turn starches into sugars and those sugars are then, you know, digested by, um, yeast. Okay. So if we had to compare, if we, okay. So if we were to compare this to like beer production, right, this is the equivalent of taking grain, barley, whatever it is, and letting it germinate just a little bit right. so that you can turn that raw ingredient into a sugar source for yeast for fermentation. Exactly. Um, and so from what makes sake a little bit different than beer is that the the process of turning starches to sugars in beer happens separate of the fermentation process, where with sake... They happen side by side. Okay, so just to recap for everyone, because we've covered a lot, we've taken that rice, we've polished it to whatever degree we wanted, and then taken that polished rice and exposed it to koji mold, which turns the rice into a digestible carbohydrate, and then we expose it to yeast for fermentation. Yes. Yeah, so the the the, the koji, you, you take the rice, you mill it down, you steam the rice um, to you know, cook it and make the, make it a little bit, uh, easier to digest for the koji. Uh, it kind of, you kind of like almost gelatinize, um, the rice. Then the koji comes in, digests all of the starches into sugars. And as they're kind of outputting these sugars, you're introducing yeast 
to take those sugars and then convert them into alcohol. Um, and during the sake brewing process, they do this multiple times throughout uh, the brew. So whereas with wine, they usually have a crush and then they let it go through fermentation. Um, this is a continuous adding of product. So real you know, quick, there's this not, is going I don't, on simultaneously the converting of starch to carbohydrate and the converting of carbohydrates to alcohol via fermentation. Fermentation and starch conversion is going on simultaneously. Yeah, in uh, in Japanese they call it heiku fuku haku, which uh, means multiple parallel fermentation. All right. And if you if you have trouble remembering that, it it's really easy just to sing it to the tune of Hey Jude, which is like heiku fuku haku. That's usually how I remember it. <laughs> all right, you just got to be a big Beatles fan. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I was laughed at at my no. sake thing for doing that, but it was, no way. it was a lot of fun. No, you were flexing on all of them with your white album knowledge. That's what you were doing. But so we've talked about uh, polishing, we've talked about koji, but and then we've talked about this um, multiple parallel fermentation that's going on. What happens after that? What's the next stage? So so typically um, the sake would be um, pressed, right? So it would have all of the the mashed up rice and everything strained out and then it would be uh aged for usually around six months and then it would be released uh to the public now in the olden days they didn't do that they would usually drink a bunch of the sake right away um or or they would you know filter it and leave some down sometimes they wouldn't filter it they we still one of the most popular types of sake is unfiltered sake but it's really a misnomer because um it the sake almost always is filtered right it's pressed it separated the the basically the rice lees from the the liquid itself and then um they kind of take it they adjust it they say okay we we like it this way or whatever and then um they add uh some of the leftover cake from the pressing like some of that rice smush and add it back into the sake and they they do this because it's a it's a way to create a more consistent product okay so just to be clear we're talking about nigori sake uh and you're saying that nigori is actually filtered and then the leaves are added back into it right yeah and that's just for like consistency sake. yeah that and also they can kind of figure out exactly what water content they want before they put that back in. Because the the cake itself, the leftover amount, has some alcohol to it. So when you add it back in, you're adding a little bit of alcohol. So in order to get your sake to that nice palatable range, which is, you know, traditionally like 16, 17%, um, they dilute the sake down from usually 22-ish percent where the fermentation usually finishes off. Okay, so aside from dilution, there's a there are two big things that a sake brewer is going to have to decide at this point in production, mm-hmm. right? It's yeah. whether or not to add brewer's alcohol and whether or not to pasteurize. And each of those things are really going to determine so much about the flavor and categorization of the product. And maybe we can start with the addition of alcohol, right? Because... At this point, there's only like three or four ingredients that go into sake. Yep. We have uh, rice, koji, yeast, and water, and that's it. And then when you want to, uh, you know, bottle the sake or press the sake to get it, if you want to add alcohol to it, you legally have to do it prior to um, uh, pressing. So after after you press sake, you are only allowed to add two things. And that is water to dilute it and the sake lees, like we talked about. Those are the only two things that you can add after it's been pressed. So if you want to actually add alcohol to it, um, then you have to do that prior to uh, pressing it. Okay, but like why would someone want to add alcohol? What's the reason for a brewer doing that? Um, extraction they is the, is the main reason. So... There's a long story about how alcohol, brewer's alcohol, basically got into um, sake in the first place. And most of it has to do with World War II and trying to uh, kind of 
um, save rice for soldiers and have the sake brewers kind of produce this thing that tastes like sake but has um, more alcohol added to it. And then, of course, after that, the industry decided to run away with it. It got way too big. There was alcohol being added way too much. And so then the government chimed in and regulated and said, hey, like, if you want to make, you know, sake and you want us to put specific things on the label and call it, you know, a premium sake, then you can't add a bunch of alcohol to it. And you're going to have to add that alcohol prior to pressing so that way it extracts more flavor from the rice and isn't just, you know, filler. So you can add water and alcohol to it and have it have hints of sake. It, it's it's almost similar to um, barrel aging. It is a, it, it's often to concentrate flavors. But in reality, it's, you don't have these brewers that are sitting down and they're saying, I'm only making a sake where I'm going to add brewer's alcohol at the end. No, they're making two sakes. They're making one where they don't add the alcohol and they're making one where they add the alcohol because there are specific flavor profiles that go tend to tend to go with um, sake that has a little bit of brewer's alcohol added to it. And when we talk about adding this brewer's alcohol, it is a very, very, very small amount. Like it's the legally, it can't be more than I think 10% of the weight of the milled rice before it's been cooked. It's a very small amount. Um, and it is, it's considered by those that really dive into sake to be a little bit more refined, uh, in a way, most people that are purist, they snub their nose at it because they think, Oh, it's gotta be just the, 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 the rice and the, uh, and the yeast and the koji. And then that comes out, but they're drinking that sake from a producer and they may be, snubbing their nose at the style but that producer makes the makes the style where they also add alcohol to it the exact okay same. but just to be clear for listeners because we haven't used any terminology yet these two categories are called junmai and non-junmai and that refers to whether or not brewer alcohol has been added right yeah so there's to me there's to me there's the way that i teach it anyways there's three kind of distinctions between um sake and we already went over one which is the idea of table sake versus premium sake to be table sake you basically just have to make um a make sake in the basic fashion which is to have koji ferment rice and yeast ferment the sugar that the koji ferments and then you can kind of add alcohol to it you don't have to mill to any certain percentage you can do whatever you want um but it's it, there still can't be like a bunch of additives and other things but you can kind of add whatever amount of alcohol that you want uh, to increase your yields or whatever it is that you want. And then there's premium sake where you can't add a bunch of alcohol to increase your yields. You can only add it for kind of a, uh, a flavor effect because alcohol is a solvent and it gets more of those esters out of the, out of the rice. Um, uh, one thing I didn't mention is that they, they tend to uh, press some of the sake first before they add the alcohol to the mash. Um, so what they're doing is they're increasing the alcohol content in the mash to, again, extract more flavors out of there. And then that translates over. It does not make a boozier sake by any means, um, because they still dilute it with water after that. But yeah, so there's, there's uh, table sake and there is premium sake. And those are, well, that's one of the three things that are distinctions. Then there is junmai and non-junmai. And junmai means pure rice sake or sake that they don't add brewer's alcohol to. Um, and they're, junmai literally translates to pure rice. Um, non-junmai, or it's called aruten in Japan, A-R-U-T-E-N or T-I-N or however you want to spell it. I've seen it spelled multiple ways in English, but um, Aruten means that you do add brewer's alcohol to it. And of course, there are some, um, both premium sakes and table sakes that are Aruten. Um, then the third distinction or the third kind of classification that uh, I, I teach is that there's uh, Ginjo and non-Ginjo types. So uh, Ginjo it comes from the word ginjoka, which it, it basically means like it smells like fruits and flowers. So in order to get uh, a sake to be a ginjo, 
like we had talked about before, the closer that you get to the center of those starches, the more fruity aromas that you, fruity esters and, and vegetal aromas that you get, um, you, you're, 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 you want to get close to, uh, the center, you want to get as close to the center as possible. The closer you get to the center, the more of those fruits and floral esters that you get. So, Ginjo and its bigger brother or smaller brother, whichever way you want to look at it, um, Dai Ginjo, which Dai means like bigger or even more so than, um, so even more fruity and floral uh, sake. Both of those are letting you know that it's going to be a fruity and floral sake when you drink it. They also happen to have distinctions, uh, legal distinctions of how much you have to mill and certain ways that you have to um, brew the sake. So when you get that product, the government is guaranteeing that it was brewed in such a way that should produce fruity and floral aromas. Well, there you go. Sorry, that was probably confusing. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I I got to be honest, it was a little confusing. But I mean, that's what we're here for, right? We're here to kind of break this shit down and make it a little less confusing. But I'm sure that you've been in the position where you've been asked that exact same question about Junmais or non-Junmais or Ginjos, but you're in the restaurant and it's the middle of dinner service and you've got like 30 seconds to answer it. I mean, you've been in that position before, right? Oh yeah. Many times. Yeah. So, I mean, if a guest comes up to me and they just say, you know, what is the, what is it about sake? What is the difference between the, why, what is Ginjo? What is that? And I just basically tell them that Ginjo means fruity and floral. And that if you see a sake that has that word on it, then um, you can expect that it'll have fruity and floral aromas. And, if someone says, well, I've had a ginjo and it doesn't taste that way. And it's like, well, it doesn't have to taste fruity and floral, but it tends to. And it usually is much fruitier and floral um, than that brewer's other sakes that are not ginjo. So very, again, like another comparison with beer, you drink, uh, if, if you're familiar with the, you know, IPA styles, some brewers make an IPA that taste as hoppy as other brewers, you know, triple IPAs. So there's, it's kind of a similar thing. So there's some sake brewers that make a ginjo uh, that tastes as fruity and floral as other sake brewers die ginjo, which is supposed to be even more so fruity and floral Um, and vice versa. You know, we've all had, if you're an IPA drinker, we've all had IPAs that don't even taste hoppy. They taste like fruit juice or, you know, like some of the, sometimes they even taste some, like some of these, uh, um, uh, hazy IPAs. They almost like have like wheat beer kind of, uh, vibes to them. Okay. So we've talked about most aspects of production at this point, or at least the things that will strongly impact the way in which the sake will taste. Maybe now's a good time for you to talk about your experience pairing sake with food because you work in a fantastic restaurant where you're simultaneously selling and teaching about wine, beer, and sake. So for you, how do you go about pairing sake with food? My my experience has been that a lot of times when it comes to, to wine pairing, um, acidity plays a very, very key role in everything. You can, you can get all the other flavors right, but if you don't have the acidity right, it'll ruin the pairing. Uh, and, you know, we've, you've seen this countless times. It's so automatic to those of us that are... Uh, you know, professionals in this that we don't even think about that concept because we just have it in our repertoire. But the with sake, it's the same thing except for it's umami. It's the concept of umami. So um, if you know you're not familiar with umami, it's the you know the it's a, the concept of savoriness. This this uh, robustness, like gaming meats have it, dark chocolate has it, green tea has it, um, chutoro, otoro. You know, those things have it, this, this Moorishness that's just savory and, and, uh, very amino acidy. And with sake, the, to me, when it comes to pairing food with sake, the most important thing is to make sure that the richness or the umami of the sake, um, is in balance with the richness of the dish because, Sake struggles on the acidity front. It has usually a third to less acidity than wine. And so it's hard for it to stand up to many foods. And normally we think of how our 
wine is going to play off of our food um, and, and vice versa, but in how a wine can ruin a food or how a wine can make a food and all these actions where the wine is approaching the food with sake, it's usually the other way around where the food is kind of tampering with the sake. It usually has more acid. It usually has more going on than the sake, which is, you know, tends to be a very subtle drink. And so when it comes to pairing those two things, you, to me, the first thing you have to think about is how rich is the sake and how rich is this food? Um, and that, you know, that, that kind of, there are, there are guidelines that, that go with that. Like the Ginjo types tend to not be as rich. They tend to be lighter in body. And so maybe when you're eating a piece of Otoro, which is the pinnacle of sushi, you shouldn't be drinking a Daiginjo, which is the pinnacle of sake. Not that there's Daiginjos that can't hold up their flavor to an Otoro, but in general, you might be better off going with something like just a regular Junmai that would have some more body to it to really kind of balance that. Okay, fair enough. Um, but I guess one question I have is, what do you wish that your guests at Uchi either knew about sake or asked when it came to sake? Um, I mean, it's. I think that one of the one of the big things is is this again this concept of of looking at a sake menu and and trying to categorize it um, into these. Um, different things and looking at the price and thinking that that has something to do with, you know, what the, the flavor profile is going to be and, and all that. And I wish that people would just come in and say, you know, I want a sake that tastes like this. And then you can kind of direct them in that fashion. One of my favorite things to do is when I get somebody who finds a sake that they like, I have them taste another sake that's a, a similar style to it. And I get them to try it. And then they're like, no, I really like this one too. And I say, okay, cool. Just so you know, like your style that you seem to enjoy the most is, you know, this style. You really like namazake. You know, you like unpasteurized sakes. Uh, and so then they're like, oh, cool. And then I'm like, whenever you go somewhere and you see a sake list, I try to tell them, like, you hover around there for a little bit. And it's it's basically my way of getting okay, people. Okay, but like quick aside here, because I think it's important, is like how... Is that how the Uchi sake list is organized? Is that how most sake lists are organized? Are there different stylistic ways you can have them set up? I think that sake lists are usually just as as confusing and random as 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 wine lists all over. You know, like there's you walk into some restaurants and you look at a wine list and it's, you know, organized by country. Sometimes you walk in, it's organized by varietal. Sometimes you walk in, it's organized from lightest to heaviest in general. Sometimes you walk in, it's just organized by price, sometimes alphabetically. Um I, I think that sake is even more so like that because most of the time beverage directors at a lot of places aren't thinking about um, sake as something from here. So they just put it in order of, of grade or they put it in order of, uh, of, of uh, how expensive it is. I guess that that is the most common thing is that they put it in order of grade. So from usually lowest uh, milling uh, amount to highest milling amount milled away um and those usually also like i said translate to price as well yeah i i get that that takes into account like milling procedure but what about the junmai or non-junmai that binary do you find that lists have like two parallel lists going on with like on one side you know junmai and on the other side you know brewer alcohol added sakes or are they just kind of intermingled i have i have seen a couple of times where they do that but typically no it's usually all um, it's usually all kind of to running together. Um, and the, the biggest mm -hmm. distinction that I see are the Ginjo and the non Ginjo types. They put the, they put the Futsushu at the top and they put the Daiginjos at the bottom. So your cheapest, you know, most easily made sake with your most difficultly made sake. That makes sense, but I can see how someone might skip over a style of sake that they might otherwise like simply because it's at the top of the list. But in general, are there things that you wish that guests from Uchi knew? Um, if there was some piece of advice that you could give to, you know, potential guests, what would it be? Um, I would say that, like, honestly, if you're, if someone's a complete novice at sake and they come in and they want to order sake and they want to, like, have a, an experience with sake, those people are usually always open. It's usually the people that have been going to other Japanese restaurants and have had some type of of 
standard that they, you know, believe to exist. And then they come in and you try to tell them about something and they immediately are like, no, 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 I don't, I don't drink that. You know, and it's like, have you ever had it before? And it's like, no, no, I've just heard that it's bad. And I think the most common example of this is sake that's not cold. Um, for most people that start drinking sake at Japanese restaurants, there's usually someone that tells them that cold sake is better sake. And again, the reason is because the lighter styles of sake tend to be, uh, they tend to have a little bit more uh, come out when they're cold, uh, mainly because the acidity in sake comes from amino acidity. And as you uh, have a sake come from cold to warm, the amino acidity grows greater and greater. And what are amino acids? They're proteins. And again, those proteins are what we're trying to avoid when we're making a ginjo and a daiginjo. So when you have a warmer daiginjo, it typically means that you're letting more of that protein flavor take over those fruity flavors. So when it's cold, you're getting more of those esters um, and you're not getting as that. So with that being the highest, you know, milling of sake and with our Western minds, we apply that that must be the best sake and therefore the best sakes must be cold and therefore I should not be drinking room temperature or warm sake because it must be crap. And that, that can be... <laughs> yeah, it's that example of, you know, someone having just enough information to be dangerous. Right, like Rieslings are sweet, right? That's like the, probably, it, it, I would say that's, that is probably a, a perfect comparison because, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, well, hot sake is bad. Well, if you drink a Riesling, it's sweet. You know, it's like, it, it's, it's, it, it, it gets the same uh, reaction from a lot of people that I work with. Matt, you've been selling sake in restaurants for a while. I want to know what styles of sake are you most excited about right now? Um, I I really like all styles of sake, honestly. I even like a lot of the food sushis because since they don't have to abide by the government's standards, they can experiment more and do weirder shit, uh, which is which is awesome. Uh, and I'm I'm all for experimentation, but uh, the things that make me the most excited about sake are the things that are really good at uh, pairing with food. And those tend to be not as traditional. Um, I like, I like things that are big umami bombs, um, you know, things that are uh, sometimes sweet. I also really enjoy unpasteurized sake or namazake, um, we didn't we we didn't go over that exactly, but essentially after sake is pressed, they have this liquid and they pasteurize it because there's so many little things that the koji and the yeast are still doing in there, um, and uh, the, the, all of their byproducts that they produce look really good to other things like you know um, like winococcus or you know things that things that would make something go through mallow, right? This is this would be like a taint in sake. So what do they do in order to produce to to keep this from happening? They basically sterilize the sake. And since there's not a lot of uh, polyphenols like there are in wine, um, and there's not a lot of uh, uh, protein like there is in beer, this heating up doesn't really taint the sake very much. Um, it does inhibit some of the flavor, but uh, you know, a lot of times this is their directive, right? Because for 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 sake, the the idea is how you produce it, not not the products. So very much similar to to beer in a way. Um, and so for me, the when, when once they've pasteurized it, it it's very you know standard. They have this. This is the flavor that they're going for. It's going to be unchanged. But like I mentioned earlier, I'm a big fan of fermentation. I like the flavors of fermentation, and so they're you know, it's an, it's been emerging for a while and now it's become very, very popular. Um, but namazake, the unpasteurized sake where they don't pasteurize it, they put it into bottle, they send it out. It's still alive. There's still um, some taint that can happen, but it's got a lot of zippy flavors. A lot of the acidity when they heat that sake up kind of gets cooked off. So when you're not heating it up, when you're not pasteurizing it, you're keeping some of that acidity. Um, traditionally when you go to Japan and you get an omakase, which is like the, the tasting menu, you know, at your typical Japanese izakaya, uh, you would then, you would get like sushi pieces and you would have a tempura course. And then you would go into some other stuff like during the tempura course, 
or, or during everything they're serving you sake except the tempura course. They serve you beer because the tempura is so doughy and battery and rich that it's just gonna it's just gonna wreck the sake typically. Well, namazake kind of comes in and saves the day there. It says, "Hey, I have a bunch of acid. I can handle all this deliciousness and uh, and really." Uh, really make make it shine and uh tempura also brings out a lot of the the zippiness and the zestiness and the and the namazake another uh thing that i really like is kijoshu's which is what i'm drinking right now the hakai-san um kijoshu 2017 so kijoshu is where they are brewing sake and during the process uh they actually take already made uh sake and pour it in to there and what this what this tends to do is uh, make a sake that has a little bit more concentrated, uh, like rice flavor, almost like a sticky rice flavor. Um, and there's different ways of doing it, and, and a bunch of brewers have different approaches. But that that kind of seems to be the consistent thing is that it's this like sticky rice flavor. They also tend to not let the alcohol get as high, uh, so they they don't fully ferment it. They leave a little. Um, sugar to it so it's got a little bit of sweetness uh, and then they also typically age it um, for a little while to kind of let everything settle down and and really mellow out and kind of uh, really to get some of that nuttiness out because as sake ages um, it it becomes nuttier and that's not a typical thing aging sake for a long period of time right no again you know the calling back to beer you know when you buy a beer at the store you shouldn't sit on it for three years thinking it's going to be better <coughs> in three years. It doesn't mean that it's going to be bad necessarily, um, but it's definitely not the way that whoever was brewing that beer uh, intended you to drink it. And the same thing is is true for for most sake. When you buy it, it's meant to be drank within you know six months to a year and a half, depending on the style of sake that it is. Um, and if you if you wait any longer, then uh, it, it's going to start having developing flavors that are, that are not what the brewer intended. Some people like those flavors. Um, I personally like those flavors. I like them when they're on purpose. I don't like them when they're on accident. Usually if they're on accident, like I have, I can't tell you how many people I know, how many friends I've had that, you know, they're like, Oh Matt, like, you know, sake. And I'm like, Oh yeah. What's up? What's your question? And they're like, Oh, well I bought this bottle of sake 10 years ago when I went to Japan and I've been saving it for a very special occasion. And I'm like, well, it's going to be special. <laughs> it's going to be very interesting the way that that thing tastes because it and it's probably going to be brown, like dark, dark brown. Yeah. And, and, and sake is, is not really like wine. You don't even if it's in even if the emerging style of age sake is, uh, you know, even if you like go and you're like, oh, I want to buy this. Uh, aged sake that's at four years and then i'm going to sit on it until it's at 10 years like they're 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 still releasing it trying to make you drink it within that year they don't want you to age it they're taking uh they're taking very precise measures and precautions usually uh to make sure that it tastes how they want it to taste at this certain point and that's when they're going to release it and that's what their whole brewing process is around where again wine is about this idea of a product and how it changes over time and you know what that product can do on its own and how to assist it sake is a production it's you're you're trying to get it to a certain point it's a specific stage direction you're like here we go and now you're on and it's like now enjoy it and and it's very much like uh like beer in that way well is there anything else that people should know uh, about sake consumption or production before we let you go um no, I guess the only the only other important thing is uh, to is sake etiquette. You should always pour for the other person or for the other people. It's bad luck to pour for yourself in Japanese culture. And uh, the way that you cheers is you say kampai. Kampai, cool. What does that translate to? Uh, empty cup. Empty cup, kampai. Sounds good. Well, now that we've gotten all the sake stuff out of the way, all the talk of fermented rice, uh, what else? What else do you have going on? I mean, you're passing the time in quarantine like the rest of us. I know you like to ferment honey. Uh, any mead being made right now? Uh, no, there is no mead being made, but I do also have bees. And yesterday I did a hive inspection, and my basically 
the short end of it is that it feels like there's a shit ton of honey up in there. So probably in a month I will be taking that and harvesting it and then probably making uh, quite a bit of mead out of it as I love to make uh, really nice dry meat. <laughs> well, you got to get to that honey before the murder hornets do. Yeah, the the murder hornets are uh, scary. Hopefully those uh, the, the people in Washington are doing their part to uh, keep that at bay. Uh, but there's also regular hornets tend to attack beehives and there's a lot of there's a lot of predators that that be that bees have and uh it's it's a lot of fun it's like if you if you if you've wanted to garden but you don't really care about gardening get a beehive because it's about the same thing you go out, yeah you go out there once a week and you kind of check on them and you look for certain things kind of like you would with a plant you're just like oh this is oh it looks like there's holes in my plants i need to like you know do this or and of course there's the whole spectrum of whether you want to use chemicals or not just like with gardening um for certain things and of course i try to do a hands-off approach that's my three but you just go out there and try to make sure that they're doing what it is that they need to be doing and that they're not in danger and then doing your part to keep them that way because it's a it's a symbiotic relationship. You're you're helping them stay alive, and helping them to expand while they while you siphon off some of their honey. Hey, well, thanks again for all the time. Good luck with the honey, and we'll talk soon. Word later, man. All right, bye. If you have more questions for Matt, either on starting your own apiary or the differences between Taruzake and Awasake, you can find him at Uchi here in Houston. I hope this week's episode was helpful in breaking down some of the basics of sake production. If it was, go drop a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and if you haven't already, hit that MFing subscribe button to get fresh episodes delivered to you every Wednesday. As always, keep drinking good drinks, and I'll see you next week.